The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Let me put myself in context. I told this to my last class that I wanted to at least introduce a little bit about myself and why I'm here with you. I told you my name's Greg. What I didn't tell you is that I have the privilege of being a professor at a place called the Masters University in Santa Clarita, California. It's about two and a half hours from here. It's not a bad drive, actually. So I, in that process, I get to teach biblical counseling. That's my full-time job, believe it or not. That happens. And I teach bachelor's degree students. So we have bachelor's, we have master's degree students at master's. That's always confusing. And I have the privilege of teaching biblical counseling with our undergraduate students there. So just a little bit about what that means is that there are those, some of you are taking this just as one weekend. Others are taking it as part of your overall training and certification with IBCD. There are those that actually go and pursue a formal degree in biblical counseling, and they can major in it. We have a few institutions that are even represented here. You've probably heard of a Reformed Theological Seminary. That's where Jim Neuheiser is at. Southern Baptist, that's where Jeremy Pierre is at. So some of those schools all teach this stuff formally and that people are now using this information to move toward their vocation. But Masters has been doing it the longest, folks. 28 years. This is our 28th year of teaching biblical counseling, which we're pretty proud of. If you think back 28 years ago, biblical counseling was not popular. It was actually kind of unpopular. And if you stick around biblical counseling for a very long time, you start to see that there are not people. There, there are people who do not like biblical counseling because it's seen as um, maybe just being Neanderthal-esque or simplistic. That how could you believe God's word has answers for the problems we face in life? And uh, I was just traveling through the, some of the U- UK teaching this stuff. What is biblical counseling? And we were again reminded about that fact that not everybody's amenable to it. Not everybody's like IBCD where you're kind of here because that's what you believe. So uh, we have the privilege of getting to do that at Masters now. This is our 28th year. All right, that's one dynamic. I'm zooming it in just a little bit further. When I'm not at my school teaching, I'm usually at my church pastoring. I get to be a pastor of counseling at our church. The church is called Faith Community Church in Newhall, California. We're an EV-free church, and we have a counseling ministry that I get to work with. We have four people, two males, two females, that do the work of biblical counseling. And all of them are in their own certification process, too. Uh, Yeah, I think, yeah, no, they're all in it. So they're doing ACBC certification, which is like a sister organization through IBCD here. So that means that just very practically, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night of this week, I was counseling, meeting with folks, and then Thursday night we came down here. And I think that's important for you guys to hear too, that like I don't want to be in an ivory tower somewhere. That would be punishment for me. I want to be in the counseling room with folks. And frankly, I think you're a little bit weird if you don't want to counsel and you just want to learn about counseling. So um, that was recorded, too. That's probably going to be used against me in some some context. But the idea is that if I were just a professor and I were not a biblical counselor, not counseling in any way, that would just be kind of weird. So I enjoyed that dynamic of getting to study and learn, getting to go to conferences like this and keep growing, but then also to take that into people's lives and say, hey, this is why it matters. Here's how the Bible connects to that problem. So that's very rewarding. All right, now I'm zooming. I'm gonna, let me zoom in just a little bit further. This one's embarrassing. So I'm trusting that you guys are going to hold in confidence some of the things that I'm telling you. I also was a former bodybuilder. <laughs> oh, all right, I know. I know. Like you don't have to judge me right now. Let me explain some of what that means. <sighs> former bodybuilder is a very subjective term. Like, what does that mean? Well, in high school, I actually pursued lifting weights, uh, any elective I could take in the gym, you know, not like basketball gym, but weightlifting gym. That was where I was at. And there was very much a time in my life when my identity became about bodybuilding. Bodybuilding is a little bit different from weightlifting because it's, it's more about the way that you look and less about how strong of a person you are. So you could actually be very weak and look like you're very strong and be an effective bodybuilder. I know that may seem strange. 
But the idea is that you're seeking to build your body and to sculpt your body in a way that it looks muscular so that you can go and compete by showing off your body. Isn't that a weird thing? Like when you say it like that, it just sounds really weird. I get it. So I actually competed in high school in bodybuilding, spray tan and all. <laughs> it was really weird. I'll tell you a story at the end of our time together about our spray tan adventures. I um, competed in the novice. I competed in the teen division. I was still under 18 at the time whenever I was pursuing bodybuilding. At one point, if you had asked me, Greg, what is what's your vocational aspirations? I would have told you bodybuilding. <laughs> I would have told you that. That's what I was pursuing. I was, I was planning on starting a career in much to my demise, I won that competition, so it gave me more confidence that I could do it. That was probably like uh, the worst thing that could have happened at that time. So bodybuilding was very much a part of high school moving into college. All right, college years go by, and you, know, you, sh- you just kind of let yourself go. It's college. You're trying to scrap it together on beanie weenies and ramen noodle, and as best as you can, you just have calories. You don't care where those calories come from, but what took place is after college, I joined the military, and the military, as part of your work day, works in PT. So we had physical training every morning, 0530, and I again got back into my exercise rhythms. And if you're familiar with CrossFit, CrossFit is this kind of high-intensity workout. Its goal is to blend strength with flexibility, with cardiovascular health. And what CrossFit does is basically it takes over your life. Like bodybuilding, there I was, I'm back in it again. Ah, I went to Japan to get trained in CrossFit to go for a certification so that I could then teach other people in my unit. So I became a CrossFit instructor. I was one of those nuts. And I would go back and I would uh, get involved in teaching CrossFit. We even competed with other units. Guys in my unit would go and represent our unit and do CrossFit games with folks from other units. We would go and instruct kids in CrossFit, just proper form, techniques, things like that, helping organize different um, events while I was in the military. So I, I make those confessions to you in hopes that you're not going to tweet them out instantly. But then secondarily to show you that uh, when we talk about fitness and we talk about how fitness connects to our identity, I'm assuming in some way that your dots connect like mine do to fitness and how we can view fitness as being part of our life or our health as being part of our life. So when I talk about fitness, first of all, I want to talk through the idea of what is fitness. So I'm at point one in your notes. It says identity in fitness. Let's talk about fitness for a second. And I'm not intending to be Aristotle with you here, but what is fitness? Like when I say fitness, what comes to your mind? And I, I want a little bit of dialogue here if you're open to that. When we, when we talk about fitness, what are some of the things that come to your mind? And I'm going to repeat you for the sake of this recording. What comes to your mind when you think about fitness? Yes. I, I think of two things. First of all, physically fit, being capable of putting your body through the paces to achieve a certain goal. The other is spiritually fit. Yeah, good. Okay, good. Thanks for stealing my thunder here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Physically fit, your body can accomplish something. You use the idea of a certain goal. Yeah, runner, biker, weightlifter, bodybuilder, whatever that is, that your body can accomplish something. And that you've also included the idea of spiritual fitness. That there is a a spiritual element to maintaining health. Any others, any additions or clarifications that you might offer? As you think these through? Is it what comes to your mind when you think of fitness? Did did that capture everything? Yeah, I think probably when I saw the um, the title for our workshop, yeah. what you think, what I what I thought of was spiritual fitness. I didn't even think about the physical part. Okay, good. Yeah, good. Thank. So the idea is thinking about the spiritual part more. Or when you read that title, that you thought of it as a spiritual preparedness over a physical preparedness, which is good. 
Um, that just means you're holier than the rest of us. <laughs> Thanks for rubbing it in. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're more spiritual than us, so we get it. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not here to make a case for fitness, no, I know it Sorry, I shouldn't laugh at my own jokes. Uh, yes, more. Yeah, good. Okay, good. So when we talk about adding to it, the comment is that we're being able to serve more effectively the gospel, the kingdom. And I would argue that some of that goes back into your own physical preparedness. Uh, what do I mean by that? When we know, when we understand the way God created us, He did not just create us a soul, He created us a body and a soul. And anthropologically speaking, you're not one or the other. So that it's not that your soul is more important and your body is less important. That's Gnosticism when we start to think that way. But rather it's that God has created us this interconnected whole that we are both soul and body in one. So when I talk about my preparedness for ministry, my body is a part of that. And I can detract from my preparedness for ministry if my body is a, like a faulty vessel or is a failing vessel because of my own doings. So I'm going to try and thread that needle and to balance that idea of what it means to pursue fitness physically while also ensuring that I get the balance right of spiritual fitness. But when we talk about what is fitness, like you answer all of those. I mean, basically, physical health is what you'll research and find the answer to. Physical health is what fitness looks like. But if you're familiar with other standards of physical health, you recognize that that's not true in other cultures. So what an American may see as being physically healthy may not necessarily be true if you were to go to Asia, for instance, or if you were to go to Africa, or if you were to go to another part of the world, you recognize that American standards for physical health are not always what would be represented in another place. So then the question is, well, who determines what physical health looks like? Who's the one that finally gets to say? Does that mean that muscular is the same thing as being healthy? Okay, you don't have to answer that question. I'm, I'm wanting to just bump you a little bit. Does that mean that a certain body mass index is indicative of what health looks like? That you can look at a person and you can say, all right, based off of what I see with them, then I know that they're healthy. Well, I mean, if you answer yes to that, then what you have to begin to do is to say, well, who gets to say that? Like, who gets to say that having additional fat, whatever you want to call that, is unhealthy? And what makes that unhealthy? At what point does it become unhealthy? So when we talk about physical fitness, what we're saying is that in physical fitness, there is very much a standard, maybe un unintentionally so, that someone has set of what physical health looks like. Well, who is the, who's the final arbiter of, of what that means? And so I, I hope to show you some from Scripture. Yes? The thing is, people that have an excellent DMI versus people that are worse off than I am, um, many of them die with a good BMI at a young age and also... Right. No, yeah, right. You're absolutely right. BMI is not the standard that should be looked for. That's right. Yeah, and the statement is that BMI can't be that. For those who are listening from afar, the, the, the body mass indicator, it's not a standard of what health looks like. And we know, and I'll try and argue, that there are those that have good, quote-unquote, physical health, but are perhaps poor stewards of their physical body in that process. So grab your Bibles. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to kind of work our way up to chapter 6 here in a second. But I want to show you a few things along the way. So we live in a fitness-crazed culture. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that we often equate fitness with stewardship in our Christian culture. But in our culture at large, there is very much a muscular as, as health mentality. Muscular equals physical health. 
And that's true for men. That's true for women. So fitness is often now confused based off the culture in which you're living. So let me just give you a short anecdote, and then I'll jump more into 1 Corinthians. When I lived in Korea for almost three years, the Koreans thought it was gross how Americans emphasized fitness and being muscular. That was gross. To see a man with big muscles and big veins was very off-putting. They would call it monster-ish. They say it look like, he looks like a monster. And, you know, in, in our mind, we're thinking of, like, uh, Dwayne Johnson. We're thinking of, like, The Rock, like, hey, that's a macho man, like, riding a Harley, big muscles. Sure. In their mind, they were thinking, oh, that's gross. Like, why would you ever want to do that to your body? And what began to click for me is I realized that in our American culture, we have very much blended the idea of being muscular or having a certain body shape with health. And then take one step further down into what Christians now think of as health. That we're seeing that there is a certain physical standard for what stewardship looks like. Have you ever heard the phrase, the temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard it connected to fitness? Being a good steward of the temple. Is that, uh, and, and please don't answer this question yet because I'm going to try and give you the answer. Is that a biblical use of the temple of the Spirit? So I want to try and jump with you now to 1 Corinthians. So you recognize that in 1 Corinthians, Paul is seeking to write in chapter 1, verse 10, write to brothers and sisters who are in disagreement. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. This is really how Paul starts the book, and he begins to move towards unity and how it's the wisdom of God that's going to bring about the answers, not your own wisdom. So don't, don't um, bask in your own wisdom and in your own knowledge, because God actually chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And the message that you preach is never going to be seen as being laudatory or being awesome or amazing because it's the message of the cross. He moves from that into now chapter 3 where he's addressing the divisions of the church and saying that there are some of you who are saying, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Cephas. There are these campaigners within the church aligning themselves to the spiritual leaders. Verse 5 of chapter 3, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, and the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. There's nothing to boast about in those people, because God is the one that's used those people. But what you may not know is that it's in this chapter that Paul first introduces the idea of your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit in the context of church divisions. Look in verse 16 with me. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. It's believed that Paul is starting, first of all, by speaking of the church at Corinth. That as a whole, he's addressing them as the dwelling place of God. But here is that idea that Paul starts to introduce is what it means to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have God's Spirit dwelling in you, church at Corinth. So don't be divisive. Don't be argumentative. Don't be campaigners for individual people. Be willing to be unified around the wisdom that's found in God alone. So keep fast forwarding with me. At the beginning of chapter 4, he says, think of us like this. We're just servants of the Most High. We're just stewards of the excellencies, the mysteries of the faith. So go to chapter 5. This chapter is going to be really important as you understand the flow moving into chapter 6. What happens is in chapter 5, Paul says that it's been reported, verse 1, that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Think of the flow of the letter now. Okay, there's divisions. You guys are campaigning for Apollos and for Paul. Recognize that you're part of the overall temple. 
So think of us as stewards of the mysteries of God. Now in chapter 5, he begins to transition to confrontation and says, there's sexual immorality among you. And it's, it's of such that it's not just any type of sexual immorality. It's that there is a stepson with his stepmom. A man has his father's wife. And instead of the Corinthian church addressing that and dealing with that and lovingly confronting, what takes place is that they're arrogantly boasting in how loving they are towards this. They're tolerating that sexual immorality. So chapter 5 actually ends by him saying, if you don't purge the leaven out, it will leaven the whole lump. If you're unwilling to address the sexual immorality that's taking place in the church, it's going to affect everybody else in the church. That's not loving. That's like gangrene. It's going to spread. So in that context, that brings us to chapter 6, where we now have a backdrop of a divisive church, of a church that's tolerating sexual immorality. At the beginning of chapter 6, he says, instead of doing, going to law against other believers, aren't you just willing to be wronged? Now look, I want you to start with me in verse 9. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So pause with me. Well, in this context, that's very pertinent to the Corinthian church. You are a divisive group. You are a campaigning group. You are tolerating sexual immorality in the church group. Excuse me, don't you know, don't you know that if your life is marked by these things, that you are not inheriting the kingdom of God? Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So instead of finding your identity in those things, we could even say that Paul is suggesting that you're to find your identity in your own justification and now your present tense identity with Christ in your sanctification. You're not that anymore, but you have been washed, you have been saved, you have been justified, declared righteous before the Lord. But that's the immediate context of what we have here for being a temple of the Holy Spirit. We have sexual immorality, chapter 5. We have that the sexually immoral will not be inheritors of the kingdom. And then now we see that this is where Paul uses the idea of sexual immorality as it's connected to the temple of God. So verse 12, look with me here. All things are lawful for me. That's a quote. But not all things are helpful. He quotes again the Corinthians. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Verse 13. Hopefully your Bible has quotation marks. Most people believe that Paul is quoting them. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. End quote. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. All right, now in this immediate context, Paul is talking about fleeing sexual immorality. How important is that now for the Corinthian church who's tolerating it out of quote-unquote love, that they're allowing their 
the son of stepmom to engage in relationship. And now he says, that's not who will inherit the kingdom of God, but it's those who have been justified and washed. So flee sexual immorality. And in this context, we see that he starts to key into first century temples. Well, some actually believe that for the church at Corinth, that there was actually a temple present in which prostitution was taking place concurrently. So that when he's using the idea of joining yourself to a prostitute, that there are those in the congregation that know that at that moment, false idol worship was taking place through prostitution. That's one thing. So under this idea of first century temples, we recognize that potentially Paul is thinking of that illustration and saying, hey, if you join yourself to a prostitute, you're one with that prostitute. But then also recognize that Paul is using the idea of first century temples and saying that you're God's temple. If you were to go into a Greco-Roman temple, you would be greeted by shrines of those lowercase gods. Juno, Zeus, Helios, Jupiter, that you can, to this day, you can go into Turkey and Greece and you can look at Greco-Roman temples that are dedicated to those gods. So Paul is trying to emphasize something here for the Corinthians, and he's saying, see yourself as God's temple. That's Zeus's temple. That's Jupiter's temple. That's Juno's temple. You're God's temple. And because you're God's temple, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. Well, that's a game changer. The reason that's a game changer isn't because of your own inherent value. Like, man, you made such a great temple that God decided to use you and indwell you. No, what takes place is because the Spirit of God dwells in you. It changes the way you use the temple. And in this context, it's primarily through sexual purity. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? You're not your own. Verse 20, you're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When we talk about fitness and we use this as a dot to connect to fitness, we're not identifying the immediate context of the passage. Paul isn't talking about the shape of your body. He's not, he's not talking about if your temple's bigger or smaller. <laughs> There's some of that, yeah. If, you, if you're not... Uh, potentially, there could be a place for poor exegesis. I have a friend of mine that every time he goes on a diet, he says he's trying to downgrade the temple into, uh, downgrade the Holy Spirit into a condo. <laughs> we we kind of just laugh about it, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, like, ah, oh, yeah, we get it, you're on a diet, sure. But in this immediate context, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that if you're being sexually pure, then you're stewarding the temple of God. That's the context. So now, if I begin to make an extrapolation, or if, if I begin to make a case on how me engaging in fitness is stewardship of the temple of God, I'm just saying something different from what Paul was saying here. I should rather be saying, am I being sexually pure? That's what it means to be a good steward of the temple of God, according to this passage. Okay? Well, that's not a home run sell for fitness. You know, like about as best as you can get is that statement. Like, let's steward the temple of God. Let's go get our protein on, folks. Well, let me show you one more direct passage about this. Go with me to First Timothy. Let's go to chapter 4. Now, recognize that Paul is talking to a young man, probably about my age, who is pastoring in Ephesus. Ephesus was not an easy place to minister. You recognize that Ephesus was riddled with false teachers. And so what Paul is constantly reminding Timothy to do is to be bold. Be bold in your faith. Be bold that you're willing to suffer on behalf of the gospel. Don't shrink back from being able to call out false teachers. Poor Hymenaeus. I hope no one named their child Hymenaeus in this room. That guy gets called out like two or three times in this book. Well, Timothy, stay faithful, man. This is what church needs to look like. Here's your leadership. So in chapter 4, he starts the transition for personal call for Timothy. Verse 6, 
If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Pause there. Isn't it interesting that how Paul calls Timothy to be faithful is to hold to the truth. Hold to the truth. Hold to sound doctrine. Teach sound doctrine. Entrust sound doctrine to faithful men who will continue to teach it over and over and over. How do you battle false teachers? Well, you don't go out wielding your spiritual sword to attack them. You hold fast to the truth. And that's what he's arguing for with Timothy here. But then he says, oh, young Timothy, there are a few things that you need to be doing. Verse 7. Have nothing, nothing, excuse me, there's my southernness. You know, in the south, we drop G's off the end. So you have to bear with me. We'll say nothing. What are you up to? Nothing. So nothing is it. Sorry to sidebar. Let's go back. Verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, here it is, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Sandwiched in the middle of these personal admonitions to Timothy, Paul makes somewhat of like an anecdotal comment about fitness. And he does it by starting with, don't engage in these silly myths, Timothy. Don't give yourself to argumentativeness, something that young men can be inclined toward. Don't be an argumentative pastor there in Ephesus. Instead of doing those things, exercise yourself for godliness. Some of your translations actually say it that way, exercise for godliness. The reason why is because that's intended, that's where we got our term gym from, gymnasium, is to exercise yourself for the purpose of godliness. And then he goes on and he says, verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul's anecdote of exercise is that it is beneficial. That's just a, that's like a passing statement. It's not an imperative that you all need to go get a treadmill. It's right here. No, that's not what he's suggesting. He's saying that, no, there is a temporal benefit to exercise. This isn't a command, though. So when we recognize that what Paul is doing is just making an observation about the nature of exercising, that he's contrasting that with the ultimate and supreme value of godliness. That godliness has not only a value here in this present life, like exercise does. Exercise has a value in this present life but that godliness actually has value in this life and the life to come. So that spiritual sweat, that sweat that you're breaking, should be for not only your body, but also for the things of the Spirit, that you're willing to train yourself as much as you would break a sweat on a treadmill, that you're willing to break a sweat in bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You could start to say those types of things. You guys okay with that? Did it create any questions? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the statement is that, you know, the, the Greeks and the Romans would have very much been inclined towards athleticism. We see that even in the, the Corinthian letters to where Paul makes reference to the games and competing. And there would have been an understanding of what beauty looks like, aesthetics. And so that Paul's connecting some of the dots. And you just think of a young man as well and maybe finding too much um, pride or, or too much confidence in his own flesh and looks. And he's just saying, hey, you can't take ultimate confidence in those things. Yes. Yeah, and add to that, you're talking about centuries of where physical activity was sort of the norm with work and the things you did because people weren't sitting at desks working on computers. Yeah, amen. So it's really been the last 50, 60, 70 years that that transition went from using our bodies, fitness was assumed, not something you did because you didn't do anything. Right. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, the statement is that now what, was, what technology has done is just shaped the way that we have to use our bodies or don't have to use them. You know, for the first time, whenever I want to go to the market, I can just hop in my car and drive there. You know, the, the most exercise I'm getting is walking to the car itself. 
So we recognize that now even fitness has changed in the last 100 years since the invention of the vehicle with some of those trends. Well, however you land on, on some of the technological advances, you see that what Paul is saying is that there is a little bit of value in fitness. I would love to hear someone preach a sermon on that. Like this is the, this is the anecdotal comment that there's still value in fitness and that as we understand that value, it's a temporal value. There will be a point when our bodies have aged to the point of being unusable and then God will take us home. But there's still a value there, but the call is not towards physical exercise. The call is toward godliness. That's the call. That's the emphasis of this text. Timothy, don't focus on the externals, focus on godliness. So when it comes to physical fitness, like that's about it, folks. That's about all that the Bible says about it. Isn't that freeing a little bit? Can we all go to a buffet? There is one other little side comment. That is, Scripture makes an interesting point in the Old Testament that Moses was very capable and physical, physically fit, even up to his the age where the Lord decided to... Yeah, yeah, hundreds of years. Interesting point, because he was quite old, but physically fit and capable, which means he must have tended to take care of himself because of the nature of the work he did. You think about it, though, and the, the comment is that uh, we see that there are Old Testament characters like Moses. Uh, those things are said of David as well. He was rugged, and they had a physical stamina or physical strength to them. Some of that we also recognize as God's providence and supernatural protection of them to preserve them and that they didn't have a frail or weak body, physical body in some of that. But on the other side, I would be really hard pressed to say that, you know, like Moses was doing air squats in the wilderness to stay in shape. You know? That's just part of life. Like you go collect the manna, you come back, you walk to the, the, the next day. Like just some of the culture of your life is what helped create. <laughs> doing his lunges with the tablets. No, that's not what he was doing. <laughs> so when we talk about fitness, it's like, man, we place such a great emphasis on it. And yet the Bible places a very minimal emphasis on it. Yes. Right. Yeah. So when you think about uh, food and you think, so the, the question is, what about food and gluttony? Uh, Philippians talks about their God being their belly. Okay, so gluttony, at what point do you become a glutton? Is it when you've had two cookies instead of one? Is it an event or is it a pattern of life? So the Bible, it does talk about gluttonous in the same context of covetous, wayward desires. But that doesn't necessarily equate to a body shape. So for instance, I know many skinny people that just eat like anything they want to and they don't gain a pound. What? Yeah, right, right. Like, I mean, so they may not correspond to their physical body shape in that sense. So gluttony is not always like a one for one in terms of external. But when you talk about self-control, when you talk about disciplining yourself, and this thing keeps flipping off me. Thank you for letting me know. Can you guys hear me with this? <laughs> Test one. The people listening from afar are like, wah! What just happened? Where am I? All right, so I'm going to try and loop her in so she'll stay. So the idea of gluttony is connected, but it's still, I mean, you even think of some of those connections. It's still um, very minimal. Like maybe we could think of two or three passages that speak to gluttony and the dangers of gluttony. All right, so like let's breathe a little bit more relief. You know, that man looks on outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And the emphasis is consistently placed upon a uh, person's godliness, not a person's shape or even physical health. So let me try and tease out a few things and then offer to you some considerations. So what I've tried to do in each of my sessions is to provide questions to you to help you evaluate or to help those that you're ministering to evaluate. Have you found your identity in fitness? All right. Do I feel guilty if I've missed working out for a day? I skipped a day. Some of us are like, heck no, I don't feel guilty. Do you feel guilty if you missed a day? Like there's a rest day. It equates to you losing progress or losing gains to certain degrees, losing strength, losing abilities. This is true for some. 
Do I feel guilty for eating unhealthy foods, quote unquote unhealthy, as if I've done something wrong? That that brownie was wrong for me to even taste and nibble on? Have I become judgmental of those who don't exercise or eat, quote unquote, healthily? How could they do that? How could they go back for more food? And really thinking, like, how? They shouldn't be doing that. Like, I'm eating a salad. They should eat a salad. This is the way our minds start to go. Especially those who are closer to us. Total strangers, uh, not a big deal. But then we start to look at spouses or brothers and sisters or parents or kids, and we think, like, like how, do they, how do they not get it? What's going on here? Have I confused stewardship with fitness? Let me ask you a question. Who's a better steward? A person who has multiple injuries through working out, strained back, torn hamstring, ACLs, a person who has multiple injuries induced through working out, or a person who has no injuries and they're slightly overweight? <laughs> we got one brave soul back there. The question is, what are they doing for this... Uh question with a question. I always appreciate that. Answering the question with a question. That's good. Very Switzerland of you. Kudos to you. <laughs> Where are you, buddy? So, yeah, good. All right. So I appreciate the questions that you guys are offering here. Where's your identity? How's it influencing? What's the condition of your soul? Just think practically. Some of us have re-injured and injured our physical body through quote-unquote working it out. I know people that they've run for years and blown out their knees. They can't run anymore. Who's the better steward? All right, all right, like, let me back off. Some of you might love running. Ah. So now when we think through stewardship, we're just saying that from a biblical perspective, the Bible equates stewardship to sexual purity. Not that you're a great runner or you're a biker or your you fill in the blank with a body yeah, body mass or athlete or something like that alright um, where are we at we're at point five here so do I feel insecure if I don't have a muscular body shape do I feel insecure do I have do I lack confidence do I somehow feel inferior if I don't have a muscular body shape because there must be something off Okay, then maybe I know that fitness has become too connected to my identity, if that would be true. All right, let me, let me offer these, and I'm going to try and tread lightly here. We all have these folks in our lives. Will I inconvenience others for the sake of my dietary preferences? Preferences, not allergies, not legitimate, verifiable allergies. Preferences. You know how many times I had to eat when I was doing the bodybuilding? Six to seven times every day. <laughs> hey, yeah, uh, I can't go right now. I need to go eat. I need to pack my lunches. I need to take them with me and do everything. Am I willing to inconvenience others because of my own preferences? Am I being unkind to others by refusing unhealthy, quote unquote, unhealthy snacks others have offered to me? I have friends that will make us go out of our way to go to their restaurant that cooks the type of food that they can eat because they prefer that. I'm like, I'm not, a, I'm not inviting you to go out to eat next time. <laughs> going to In-N-Out. All right, last one. Maybe my identity in my fitness has become too interconnected when my physical health gets more attention than my spiritual health. Physical health gets more attention than my spiritual health. My meals, my vitamins, my cardio workouts, my weightlifting, my sauna time, my yoga class. When any of that equates to more of an investment than what I'm making in my own spiritual health, I don't really get 1 Timothy 4. The call there is not an emphasis on go work out harder, but go train like that for godliness. That's the point. You're willing to go into wake up early, to eat kale, to sweat for the sake of your physical body 
What were to be the case if you were to put that much effort into your own spiritual life? That's the point of 1 Timothy 4. Does my physical health get more attention than my spiritual health? Well, if it does, then I know that maybe, just maybe, I have found my identity in my physical health. Okay, so let's keep going here. I don't want to just ask those questions without offering to you solutions or at least things to be considering. So practical steps to help reorient my identity away from fitness toward a biblical perspective of the way that I should engage in fitness. Point A. This one might be a little controversial. I must clarify, stewardship is not equated to physical fitness from a biblical perspective. Thus, I could be what our culture would consider overweight and be a good steward. Take that, America. Have you considered that? That you can be a good steward in American culture and not be slim. This is, this is Greg's theory, all right? You guys tell me like how heretical I am with this theory. I'm actually convinced that the best stewards of their body are not the bodybuilders and the fitness gurus and the athletes that the best stewards of their body are probably the ones that are just what we would consider to be a little bit overweight. Maybe if you would use the term pudgy, like there's just a little bit of extra fat. Like if they eat a brownie, it's not going to freak them out. They're not going to feel like they have to run two miles the next day. That if, if they skip a day working out, they're going to be just fine, doesn't influence them at all. Because their identity is not wrapped up in their physical appearance. They exercise, yeah, sure. They, they just try to be regular about it. But you recognize that the person that maybe, maybe they've just consumed themselves too much with their physical appearance, that they're a worse steward than that person is. You're a worse steward, but you look great. (laughs) You're You're not a good steward. That's not even what stewardship is about. So when we talk about this idea of stewardship, as physical fitness, you're recognizing that our culture has a really strange way of identifying what stewardship should look like. And maybe, maybe if we were just to qualify it from a biblical perspective, we would say, are you sexually pure or not? That's a good steward of your body. And that has nothing to do with your body shape. All right, point B. Keep going with me. God has created all things to be richly enjoyed as a means of worship to him, even brownies and rest days. I love this passage. <laughs> this is just a few verses before what Timothy was told by Paul in regard to exercising himself for godliness. Paul says that, you know, part of the, the difficulty of what you're facing is it's going to get worse. People are going to forbid good things, they're going to forbid marriage, verse 3. They're going to require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The abstinence from food is that's not the context of fitness here. It's a food to offer to idols that you can't eat that. It's been defiled in some way. And and Paul argues that's not the case. The food's not defiled. But you recognize that that principle holds true because he says in verse 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. Recognize that some of the difficulty of our fitness crazed culture is that we forget that apple pie. We forget that this is my favorite cherry cheesecake. We forget that soda. Don't let your kids have it, folks. That soda can be enjoyed to the glory of God. And that God has created these things so that I can enjoy them, high fructose corn syrup, and worship Him concurrently. (laughs) Is this okay? No one's attacked me yet. That God has created all of these things and that I can enjoy them to His glory. Ooh. I would say, well, I mean, what would you, let me, I'm going to give you an answer, but you have to be really cautious. The question is, are they profitable? You have to be really cautious about saying what makes it unprofitable. 
Can you enjoy something for the sake of savoring that meal to the glory of God? It's just an experience. Can you savor that to the glory of God and that be profitable? I don't know. Can you do that with a sunset? I would say, yeah, right? I can enjoy that to the glory of God. Yeah, okay, so good. Think through that. Yes, I want to enjoy it, but is it wise to consume FACD? Okay, good. So the question is, is it wise to consume things that are potentially harmful for your body? Long-term harm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, potentially. Yeah. Right, because we're also saying it could potentially not harm you. Mm-hmm. Right? So then, as you think that through... What is your motivation in using those things? Is it to harm your body? Can you use those things in a way to where it's, it's uh, uh, wise because you're not using it to harm your body, you're using it, you're enjoying it at this moment in a way that demonstrates stewardship. So, for instance, imagine with me that you and I were in another country and the only thing that we had available to us was rice. Rice. More rice just rice. Well, you know, there's a certain level to where any type of food is just eating that one type of food, you're going to lack other nutrients. Just eat enough rice over a period of time and you can still grow to be emaciated and lack nutrients, have deficiencies. So in that sense, we're saying that, hey, if I'm okay with it, there are things that are better for my body and worse for my body. But that doesn't equate to sin if I eat it or sin if I don't eat it. Or I would even argue it doesn't equate to a lack of wisdom if I partake of it. And I would include in those things that have the potential to. Go back and study tobacco, for instance. And if you guys are familiar with Charles Spurgeon's use of tobacco, people railed him for smoking cigars. (laughs) You know what his reply was to that? That one cigar once a month is about as harmful as eating too much cottage cheese. <laughs> it still has the potential to be harmful, for sure. So in that sense, is it can you engage a brownie on an irregular basis to the glory of God? I would say you can. And in participating in that brownie with a Dr. Pepper doesn't equate to you being unwise. Does that make sense? Because then where do you start to draw the line? Where do you draw the line? You can't breathe in L.A. I guess that's my question. <laughs> don't, don't go breathe in L.A. because that air could potentially harm you. Right, right. Exactly. That's right. You can be motivated and be self-righteous and get it wrong by skipping a brownie. Right? The motivation matters much. Or you can know that, no, this is hurting my body. This isn't good. I am for sure damaging myself by using this chemical, i.e. meth. And using that chemical, I will do damage to my body in using this and be absolutely wrong in that process. Okay. So that when you say that, um, so the, the idea is that I can 100% use a chemical in my body that I know for sure will do damage no matter how many times I use it, like meth. And in using math, I'm absolutely wrong to pursue that, knowing that that thing that man has created and discombobulated natural order, that that thing is wrong by me ingesting it. Potentially, right, potentially, because some of the, the statement is you could say the same thing about white sugar. Sorry to keep repeating. I'm trying to get this recorded as well. Um, you could say the same thing about white sugar, potentially. But you also recognize that scientific research varies. One person one day says this thing is healthy for you. One person the next day says this is unhealthy for you. One person the next day says this is healthy for you. And so your scientific research, it's like, who are you reading? And they're going to dictate what's healthy for you that day, that era, that time period. And I'm like, man, just back off. Like, right. Right, and I, um, the statement is it's also supported by who does the studies. Think of just marketing. Like you just stamp it with green and organic and you feel healthier in just pursuing it. So and to some degree, we're not saying that organic or green or local or grass-fed or any of that is wrong. 
We're just saying that you can also eat processed food to the glory of God. That's what I'm trying to argue for you. And that it's a, it potentially means that I could eat organic range, grain, gluten, all those free things, and I could eat that in a way that doesn't demonstrate glory to God. Maybe I'm doing it out of fear. So your motivation, we're going back to some of our motivation with this. It goes beyond food as well. Oh, sure. Right? So I've got a job, I've got to wear equipment that hurts my back, but I've got to do it for public safety as well. So look at that and say long term, 20 years in this career, could hurt me long term. It's also part of my job, and I have to wear it for safety reasons that it could if I didn't have it in my life right then. You know, so it's not just an issue of food. It's not just an issue of whether high fructose is going to get me or not. I mean, it's the same thing. It's, just, it's the same ideal and same principle that you're boiling down to in your choice of clothing. Uh, you know, the, the several of you got the high heels on. You know, there's a lot of studies out there that have shown it's not good for your back. Or your toes. Or your toes. That's but why I don't wear them. is it a sin to wear them? I'd say no. I don't think it's a sin for me to wear my equipment. Now, maybe I don't need to wear it on my days off. <laughs> Please don't. Strut around the house with it on. Uh, you know? But I think it's a question of wisdom and its application in your day-to-day life. Yeah, good, good. That's right. That's the comment. The comment is that it's not just a food issue that, that when we talk about wisdom in regard to what could immediately hurt your body and long-term hurt your body, that it's not just a food issue. It could be a mattress issue. It could be a car issue. It could be a posture issue. It could be a standing desk or sitting desk issue. Uh, all of those feed into this. But to go back to this idea of fitness, we're saying that I can worship God through pursuing some of these things that our culture may deem unhealthy. Casserole. I got to keep coming. I got to keep moving and then I'll come back to you guys, okay? Point C. My spiritual health must always receive a higher prioritization than my physical health. That one, I don't That one's very straightforward uh, that we recognize that there is a value to physical health, but if I'm going to get my identity right, that my physical health could actually be waning a bit and yet my spiritual health could be thriving. Okay, point D, my fitness is an act of worship to God, not a means of looking a certain way. God has created me and I must rejoice in and give thanks for the body that he has ordained for me. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, it is he that has made us and not we ourselves. All of us know people, maybe we are those people, that if you even think about eating something that has high calories, you gain weight. And then you also know the person that they just eat whatever they want and it doesn't seem to affect them one way or the other physiologically. Seem. Maybe they have high cholesterol. Maybe there's other things that are unseen. The point of this is that the goal of fitness is not to look a certain way. Maybe that's not an accurate way of evaluating fitness. That We should take the poster off the wall of Arnold Schwarzenegger and his heyday. That the goal of fitness is that you're now using your body as a vehicle for the glory of God and that the shape of that for you may look different than the shape of that for me. And that if I'm just eating a normal amount of calories and you're eating the normal amount of calories, then let's just let the chips fall where they may with our bodies. God has created us different, and that's okay. There doesn't have to be a standardization of fitness. All right, this one's going to sound weird, so I have to explain it. E, finally, I will not let my confidence be in the flesh, but rather in Christ, even when I, quote unquote, feel healthy. This sounds weird, but if you're an exerciser or you're a fitness guru, you know what I'm talking about whenever you, there are those days that you feel good. You just feel healthy, like you feel strong, you had a good workout on. That the next day there's a greater muscle awareness with yourself. You feel, you physically feel like you're better. Sometimes athletes and uh, those who lift weights and exercise, there's a good soreness. There's bad sore and good sore. And the good sore is where, hey, you, you did a great run yesterday and maybe your calves are feeling a little bit today. It's like, yeah, that's good. I like that. 
recognize this, that when Paul talks about the power of God being on display in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says that it doesn't happen at the peak. Like, I'm feeling strong. I'm feeling powerful. I had a great, like, I had my own PR yesterday for the bench press. It was awesome. He says that it was at his weakest that the power of God is displayed in him. It's in the hospital room. It's when you're injured. It's when you're feeling unwell that you depend on the power of God in your life. So to balance this last part is to say, if we are engaging fitness and it's bolstering our confidence in the flesh, then we're pursuing fitness in the wrong way. It shouldn't be making us think, well, I feel great today. I just ready. Ran yesterday. My own PR is awesome. No, what it should be doing is fueling a dependency on Christ. Thank you that you've given me legs to utilize in a run. Thank you that you've given me a chest that can help lift weights. Thank you that I can hike like you allowed me to do yesterday. Whatever that is, that I am not going to take confidence in my own abilities, but I'm going to push that toward Christ. And the danger is that we let, we let, I say let because I believe that we're allowing it, we slowly start to let it creep in that the reason why I'm doing so good is because I take care of myself. That's the converse. Uh, they have cholesterol. Well, you know, that's what happens. <laughs> you start to like, it's, it goes that way. Oh, uh, well, you know, they have knee problems. Ah, uh, well, that's, that's what happens. And what, what are we doing in that moment? We're putting our confidence in our flesh. Like, we're the one that's making this happen. We're the one that's sustaining ourselves. If they had just worked out like I did and, and eaten certain foods, they wouldn't be going through that mess right now. See, this is just kind of what happens. There's a balance there to where we're saying, no, your fitness, when you're feeling strong, when you're feeling capable, when you're feeling on top of the world, it should not fuel in you a dependence on your own flesh. It should now go towards Christ and a dependency on Christ. If He allows you to run again, it's to His glory. If He allows you to lift again, it's to His glory. To hike again, it's to His glory. It doesn't in any way somehow speak to my own giftedness, my own capabilities. It's all about Christ and, and exalting Him in this time. All right, question, and then let me conclude. Yes, sir. Uh, there is a sense, though, of self-confidence that's gained. Endorphins kick in. You do feel physically good. There is a physical change. The body says, I like that. Yes. Therefore, I'm able to go do this, help this person do that, more capable than perhaps if I didn't do that prior. And so it's finding the balance, don't you think, and, and thinking that's okay. Yeah, right. Because it's going to allow me to glorify God in a greater way. If it, fi- if it finishes that way, then yes. Okay. But it could be just the opposite. It could be the opposite, too. Man, I feel good. I'm walking yeah. by the mirror, triceps. You think of, so the statement is that it can, can you engage those things in a way that exalts the glory of Christ? Yes, if the glory is not terminating on you. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast? I don't even, I don't even have lungs. I didn't even make the lung thing happen. I didn't even make the heart thing happen. There's no way that I should cultivate confidence in the flesh based off of my own physical fitness. No way. And that segues very nicely into my conclusion. All right, you may be surprised I didn't pursue a career in bodybuilding. I know, I know it's a shocker for many of you. I gave it up. Um, I gave it up actually for spiritual reasons. It wasn't just the fact that I had to spray tan myself and wear women's makeup on my face. That was weird. It wasn't just the fact that we wore the Speedos for our competitions. That was also weird. It wasn't the fact that I had to have turkey and rice as part of my final diet right before the show. That was terrible. What took place is that I realized that if I was going to pursue bodybuilding, that I had to have a very me-centered schedule. I was working out three hours a day. My diet was all, I would bring my meal to the restaurant because I couldn't eat what they had. Turkey and rice. Turkey and rice, folks. Oh. What I am offering to you is that fitness, when we, when we understand fitness from a biblical perspective, it's a little different from stewardship. That fitness is uh, more about us seeking to manage 
food in a way that we can according to our culture. It's that we're also seeking to manage our activity in a way that corresponds to our environment. But that fitness is a a result, not a part of my ontology. It's not a part of my identity. So when we balance this idea of health, we recognize that health, physical health, does not always include muscles, muscular. And that sometimes, this is hard to hear, sometimes those that have seemingly really good physical health, that they're not good stewards of their body, but worse yet, they have a spiritual attrition that's taking place, a a lack of spiritual health. Copyright 2019, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.